Jack, thanks a million for joining us. Uh, I know it was a big time difference, so uh, trying to get this one in the books for a while, but uh, delighted that you're here. So thanks for giving up your time. So I suppose without me trying to butcher an introduction or uh, make, a, make a mess of explaining what it is that you do, maybe you could give us a bit of background and talk to us about what exactly, what exactly the coaching lab is. Yeah, cool. Uh, thanks for your time. And yeah, it's great to be here. I'm a listener as well. So it's nice to be on the flip side, I suppose. It's a bit bizarre to be on the flip side. Um, what is the coaching lab? Good question. Um, I guess the biggest thing we want to do is help coaches change the game um, and be a resource to support coaches. Ultimately, believe in that coaches are probably some of the least supported individuals within a pathway. Um, everyone cares about the players, but, you know, actually, how much do we care about the coaches? Uh, and the coaching so we're just really that middle person I'd like to see us as that added resource content um, products all that sort of stuff to just help coaches change the game and to then ultimately create great sporting experiences you never want a coach to be somebody's you never want to be somebody's last coach Um, so really just supporting coaches being somebody different being somebody neutral um, and hopefully putting a smile on their face Okay, so you mentioned about seven things I want to pick on there, but um, so you say coaches are the, oftentimes the least supported group in sport. Could you maybe expand on that a little? Um, yeah, look, I think uh, a lot of grassroots clubs we're we're really worried about players, but um, without the coaches, you don't have the players. Um, you know, so how many grassroots clubs have got a a coach development plan for their parent coaches or how many resources are being shared with those people that are an accountant during the day and then suddenly going to coach Johnny's under 12 team on a Wednesday night um, in a grassroots setting. I probably don't see that enough. And there's some great examples of some people doing some really good stuff around supporting coaches. And then I even go into a bit more of a professional pathway setting. Um, you know, it's amazing how many coaches don't get feedback. Um, it's amazing how many coaches have always done the same thing and probably always got the same results. Um, we give players individual development plans but how many times do we give coaches individual development plans and we record the players playing games but do we record the coach um, the coach's interaction so all that sort of stuff I see it as we probably don't do enough of it in a way Um, and maybe as coaches we're maybe not open to it as much as we should be yeah, I haven't gone through it myself. There is probably nothing as worse or as cringy looking at video at a video of yourself coaching uh, when you think you have uh, plans to the nth degree and and uh, and then you see yourself in action and it's a uh, yeah, it's a humbling experience to say the least. Um, so is that the type of thing, the services that you guys offer, Jack, or uh, are you what like is is it that specific or is it more wide ranging? Are you looking at doing a complete package? Or, or how maybe talk us through some of the main things that you do yeah I guess we're, we're learning led and people driven it's two kind of things I, I stand by and, and look we're in 38 countries around the world we've shipped match play cards too so there's a wide range of environments and contexts from people looking to win a world cup to you know young Stephen trying to take his young leaders and group as a, as a grassroots sport so it could be a real wide range from that personal development and professional development to actually just creating some sort of content and resources bespoke to the coaches in a certain area. So ultimately it's not us saying we have to do this, we have to do that, but actually it's being 
learning led and people driven and being bespoke to the individuals because ultimately as much as the players are important we're dealing with the coaches to then support the, uh, the to support the players okay the match play cards I've so I've I've looked them up I've seen them on the website uh, intrigued uh, you might give us some more details about what they actually are and and I suppose the big thing for me looking at them, how do you want coaches to use them? Yeah, so I guess the, the biggest thing is that um, the coach still needs to coach. So our job is not to remove the role of the coach, but actually to support the role of the coach. So we know coaches would chat, would struggle with probably having, you know, constraints and challenges ready to support mixed ability groups. We know that the most asked question of every single coach is when are we going to play a game? Um we know coaches are really struck with their time. So actually we created a resource of multi-sport challenge cards, aged five plus, um, firstly multi-sport, to just help coaches be an added resource. And how would we want them to be added in? Number one, we'd probably want coaches to be playing more games is the, the biggest driver of it. Um, so it might be that we just put some team challenges in. It might be that if we have got a mixability group where we want to stretch and support some individuals, we might set some secret challenges um, and player challenges for certain people. We may even get the players to choose their own challenge cards and keep that in for, you know, a couple of weeks, a curriculum or a terms kind of basis. Um, and we've done some reflection cards as well because we know that when we ask players questions, they normally respond with one-word answers. Um, and it's normally the most mundane answers in the world. And that doesn't really tell us what, what learning is or actually share an experience of the learner. So created 50 plus just open questions to add into halftime team talks, to give to parents in the car, um, for peer-to-peer feedback, all that sort of stuff that hopefully makes the life of the coach easier, but actually gets them to think about the player, the game and the environment. Okay. So you're obviously very passionate about coaching and uh, very passionate about getting good practices, et cetera, out there. Can I ask why? Like, what's the backstory? How how did you how did you get into this, or or, or how how has this um, how have you driven this passion into now something that you're offering to coaches worldwide? Yeah, I think like a lot of us, we probably have some really good coaches growing up and not so good coaches. Um, like, I'm a major dyslexic, so I probably see things slightly differently to others. Um, yeah, I definitely see things more in pictures and physical and all that sort of stuff rather than words on a piece of paper. So I would definitely look at a lot of environments and I'd look at a lot of players, you know, so when I was a learner and I still am a learner, but as a student at school and university, there were some really good people that supported me. Um, And I can see that in players that are now struggling. And actually if they have better coaches, not better coaches, but more adaptive, more skillful coaches to support the group, we're going to have people staying in sport for longer. Um, it was probably one of the biggest drivers is that, yeah, I had great coaches and not so great coaches, but I ultimately believe that sport or youth sport is a 10 year journey at least. So everyone talks about, oh, let's you know, try and win the under 12 world cup on a Sunday morning, but actually the true youth development test is, are those kids playing in 10 years time? And where are those kids? Um, you know, in football, kind of in an academy setting, they'd call it like a, a player puzzle or start with the end in mind. Um, and I stick up for football academies all the time because um, they have an end in mind and every individual player is an individual project ultimately and I've always believed that 
if you can take that concept of every player is an individual project and you start with the end in mind, you'd have more kids playing sport because you support the individual. I believe that too often, particularly probably at the grassroots level, that we we try and develop teams and we don't develop the individual within the team enough. Okay, so you talk about having an end in mind, Jack. So so talk to me now. Give me an example. What is what is what is a practical example of the end, having the end in mind? And then from that, how can you, I suppose a lot of people listening might say that's great, but then how do you do that in an individual sense in a team setting? Does that, does that question make sense? Yeah, I got you. So let's um, spend a bit of time at the Arsenal Academy and a couple of others. And ultimately their end in mind is to create Premier League footballers to play in the first team. And ultimately, you're reaching for the stars because it's a one percenter. But actually, if everyone tries to achieve that, the others are then also going to go and play on and have great sporting experiences. So I think the biggest thing for coaches is when we say end in mind, it's actually just working backwards. So it might be, what does the game ask players? Or what does the future game look like? What are the skills, the attributes, characteristics of players for the future? And that's what I come back to earlier, that we're often really worried about developing um, the under-12s team on a weekend, but not actually looking to develop the skills for the future. Um, so we know in a Premier League setting, um, there's going to be 60,000 people and the coach isn't going to be able to give them all the answers on the pitch. So it's actually about creating some adaptive players. We know that when an 18-year-old or even younger, a 16, 17-year-old goes into a senior setting, in a more professional environment, they're going to have to communicate and self-organise and self-manage. But then how often do we give responsibility to the young people in front of us? As coaches, we're probably really quite protective sometimes. So when I say end in mind, it's working backwards and then actually building a profile of, you know, head to toe of, okay, well, what are some of the psychological skills? What's some of the physical skills? Um, some of the technical skills for the future game? And then really focusing on that. Yeah, and I, I, I like the way you describe that. And I suppose I would follow up then and say, can you then, how, how, how have you found that in practice in terms of that team environment? So 15, 20 kids potentially. Um, and I know at an elite end, it, it, it might be a little bit different because they'd all be at a certain standard to be at that level. But I'm just trying to take bring it back to grassroots coaches that may be listening who might be thinking, yeah, I'd love to do it, have an individual approach, but I've 20 guys, girls, whatever it may be. Five of them are brilliant technically. Five of them are really, really physically strong. We have a load in the middle and then I have a couple who are a little bit poor, a little bit uh, late developers. So mm-hmm. um, I suppose I'm, asking, <laughs> I'm not asking you an easy question. I'm asking you from a practical point of view, how can we cater for that individual to that level that you're describing? in that team environment or, or have you any practical advice on that? It's a good question because I asked the same question to Middlesbrough Football Club when I uh, when we helped their coaches. So it's a good question. And they they responded with that they, they build sessions around a number of players. So ultimately, in an academy session, in a group of under 15 boys or girls, there's still going to be 15, 20 players, the same as a grassroots setting. So actually every single week, they might the coach might just choose two or three players that they're actually building that session around. So it might be Jack and Stephen need this week, they just need a little bit of work on their receiving. So the coach's focus and their interactions is really in and around those individuals. 
And actually over a period of, you take a month to four weeks, you know, if you have one session or two sessions a week, you've already looked at eight different players, 12 different players. So just profiling players. So actually session one, we're going to look at one, two, three. These are the three players that we're going to look at. And then the next week, we're going to look at it again as well. We'd often plan for action, but don't plan for interaction. So what I mean by that is, how often do you go and speak to the players individually? So where do you stand as a coach when they arrive? Are you standing right in the middle of the field where they can't go and have any conversation? So really just having those individual conversations as they go in. You know, I know somebody in a, a senior hockey setting went into the programme at, um, at about 2021. 20, and I think it was about five, five days into it that the senior head coach actually had a, a proper conversation with the individual, um, which is pretty bizarre. So, yeah, for me, it's just building sessions around a couple of individuals and then building that up and sharing responsibilities as well. So it's not always the same captain, same positions, all that sort of stuff. Okay. And can I ask then, Jack, do you find, um, like, does it take long for coaches maybe to change their ways or to buy into this? Or is this more like a, and I know you said it earlier on, you start with the end in mind, but sometimes that sort of delayed gratification piece is difficult um I, i'm being kind in my words there it's difficult for to, for some coaches to grasp so how do you find that yeah i guess we make it hard for coaches because youth competition has so much perceived pressure um and it's probably part of the reason that in certain countries they don't keep the score um and they have more of a, a varied games program than a league structure so the pressure on coaches is, is there straight away because they always believe that um, that on the weekend that's the most important thing but actually if we take the game as an extension of training you actually get just another training session um, out of it so that would be probably part of my answer around that would be yeah just seeing it slightly differently uh, from that point of view okay and do you find um, so you go in and you work with a set of coaches or you do some you do some work Great progress, taking on changes. Do you find that they re some revert to type? Yeah, massively, because you you only know what you know, and if coaches never get feedback, um, you know it's, it's the first time they get it. So I always try and prime the players to give the feedback, um, and I think it's always more powerful when it comes from the players as well. Um, and that might even when I leave, you know, you'd always leave the coach with some questions to ask the players, you know, so it might be a real simple one is, you know, how do you want to learn today? So just being really open with, well, how do you guys want to learn today? Um, or just setting some, the coaches some challenges. So at the West Coast Eagles, the Australian football team here in Perth, they get, can you, you know, they've got a squad of 30 players and the head of football challenges all the coaches with the phrase of, can you get the players to work as hard as the presenter? The coaches are working really hard to do what they want to do, but actually, can you get players to do exactly the same? And I would get coaches to share what they're working on with the players as well. So actually, when I leave or somebody else leaves, there's always that feedback to come back to it. You know, so we'd expect, we'd ask players what they, what do they want help with? What are they trying to do? But actually, can we ask the same with the coaches who so would make it transparent? Okay, uh, 
a couple of points again. So you talk about priming the players to give feedback. So one, I suppose, uh, how successful are you in getting some of the players to give, let's say, call it honest feedback, if that makes sense. And um, I, I, I suppose what I'm trying to get at is with that, I know, and I know it definitely depends on the relationship that the coach has with the players in terms of, is it honest? Um, and uh, are people open to feedback and open to, to, to constructive criticism? But have you seen that that's successful? Because I'm just thinking back to some of the teams that I would have coached over the years um, and they would have been very hesitant to, let's say, criticize anything I would have done, not necessarily out of fear or anything like that, but just that they would have felt that I was the sort of authoritative figure that just picked the team at the weekend and maybe, um, and maybe that's my fault, um, but maybe that they felt then that that would affect, impact their selection on the, that team or starting or whatever that may be. Yeah, so I wrote down a few things. Um, yeah, I'd probably use, yeah, around the cards, I'd probably use kind of whiteboards in a way. So verbally, we can present our thoughts, um, but actually visually as well. So I even put some stuff here of, you might just have a couple of different boards and it might be you get players to write down what the best moment is. So if a coach is looking at that and actually the best moment of the session was when we played a game, that's good feedback for the coach to say, well, maybe we should play more games. Um, another one might be players have to write down what they need more support with. You know, so it's not me saying, Steve and I, you need to help me with this. Actually, people are just writing down their thoughts and haven't got their name attached to it, but are writing down their thoughts on a whiteboard visually, partnering up, pairing up, whatever it might be, to share that collectively. And then the other board might be, um, you know, what am I struggling with? So actually then coaches are seeing what players are struggling with. Because if a coach always says, we have to do this, we have to do that, and then players say, actually, we're really struggling with this, that's definitely going to make a coach look differently. And if I was there personally, I might even challenge some of the players to say, or just open with, you know, can we? So asking the coach, can we look at X? Can we look at Y? Um, and just building that through. But yeah, it doesn't, for me, it doesn't always have to be verbal. It might be more visual for the coach. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, and I think that, and that's that could be a, a, a much easier one for for kids to actually be able to to give that type of feedback. So a lot of what you're talking about, Jack, is like let's say it's not necessarily what you would find in formal coach education or anything like that, where it's maybe a little bit too much emphasis on the technical, tactical, physical, etc. Right. Um. So do you get much opposition to what you're doing or do you get kickback or, or are people hesitant to, to adopt these methods? Um, I, I don't think they're ever hesitant when you see players smiling. Um, and that's probably one of my pieces of advice is to coaches is just work out what makes players smile. Um, ultimately, you're a servant to the players in a way um, and you have to be quite polite and you know, present yourself and be a gentleman or a woman and that sort of stuff. But um, do you get coaches being hesitant? Of course you do, because every coach is a is true to themselves and a, a personality. And I guess we're not trying to change the personality. It's just actually, well, here's some ideas to go and try um, and just fill in maybe a few gaps, not in their knowledge, but in their experiences and their delivery. And just making coaches more skillful to think, okay, well, if I come up with this problem of a mixed ability group, well, here's some ideas I have as a coach 
then deal with that. So it's not necessarily coach, changing the coach's personality, it's just changing their skills and supporting their skills as they go through. Or an example might be, you know, we've all had it where that super loud player is a little bit too arrogant or a little bit too confident. And, you know, sometimes the coach will just tell them to shut up. But actually, what some ways that we can help that individual, you know, to have engagement in the session. And I don't revert back to type as I normally would. Okay, you've mentioned games and kids pointing to games as potentially being the thing they enjoy most in training. So uh, I know from from chatting to you before we set press record around uh, small-sided games, you were a big proponent of them. So one, I suppose two parts of this question. Um, why are you such a big fan? And two, um, everyone is talking about the, the benefits or the purported benefits for small-sided games. So... Why is everyone not just doing it? Um, yeah, so I asked, um, I asked a nine-year-old kid the other week, and I said, uh, I said, why do you like playing games? And he said, well, we play games on the weekend, so why would we do it in training? Um, which is pretty much my answer back to you, is that we're preparing players to play the game, so why wouldn't we play the game in training? Um, I, you know, I, as I said earlier, I'm dyslexic, so I see things slightly differently. And um, if I can get A to Z, I'll get A to Z. I don't necessarily go all the way in between and find the most simplistic route. Um, and to me, the best form of feedback is the game. End of. Because you're preparing players to play the game. Um, so uh, over here in Australia, they have this thing called a grading system, uh, which is exactly what it says. But when the kids arrive for the season... They go down and they do all this grading and then they get put in their teams that so might be in the five, sixes, seven, eights, nine, tens, all the grassroots hockey clubs do it. So I arrive as an Englishman abroad, you have to be quite careful, particularly in Australia. And um, and they did all these skills for this grading process. And I, I looked at it and thought, you know, what are you actually grading? You know, you're not really grading how they do a game, you're grading around how they run around cones. And actually, probably the worst person running around the cones is actually the best dribbler on the pitch. Um, you know, so for me, it's just, can training look and feel like the game as a big priority? Look and feel is, is core. Um, and what are you preparing players to do to play the game? And why does young Johnny rock up to training or even start playing Gaelic games or rugby or whatever? Because he wants to play the game. You know, I think as coaches, we're, Often, and I'm dangerous of it as well, so we're, we're probably really intentional to put our own philosophy on players, but actually the game's the game. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm thinking, so there's going to be a load of people listening to this and we've talked about small-sided games with various different guests o- o- over the years. And um, I'm just wondering, could you give me now a practical example? It, and it doesn't really matter in any sport, but what, what would a a really, really good session look like to you, like a training session. Um, so how would it, like, let's just say we have an hour session on a Tuesday and a Thursday with a game at the weekend at some stage. So give us a, and, and I know we're, we're bringing this right back, but I'm picturing the grassroots coach listening now going and say, right, how can I implement that myself? How can I actually do that? So I don't think the sport matters, but could you maybe talk us through how you think that would look or how you'd like it to look? Yeah, all right. I'll put some notes down here. So let's say um, 19 players are, you know, rock up to the session. All 19 players aren't going to arrive at the same time. So as a coach, you'd look to, number one, have the equipment out. Uh, 
and probably have some sort of goals set up. So actually when players arrive, it might start 1v you as the coach or you know ball mastery and then two other players arrive and it becomes a 1v2 and then it becomes a, a 4v5 and you just build up the numbers as they come. And then you think, okay, well, it's at 6v6 now, um, which is maybe a little bit too much. So I might divide that and have two pitches of 3v3. So their first interaction when they rock up to the session is in the game as well. Um, you know, so I, I put 19 players here. So we might put, we might design three pitches. So it might be 3v3 on each pitch, but obviously there's an odd number and everyone complains there's an, always an odd number and, you know, it's unfair and this and that. So we might just put that Roman player might run across all three pitches and just play for whoever has the ball. So you might set up three mini pitches. It's 3v3, one goal either end or a try line, whatever it might be. Um, you might say, okay, three-minute games or the first team to five goals, whistle goes, and then the teams rotate, you know, clockwise, anti-clockwise. But just designing three pitches rather than one. Okay, and then you've got 19, so it's an odd number. And you say to, you know, young Ollie, who's that number 19 player, he's not necessarily on a team. He just plays across all three pitches goes crazy, runs wild and plays for whoever has the ball, which is developing the scanning skills, is developing the communication skills that we'd want. Um, so that'd be one idea of a challenge of odd numbers, but also players arriving at the session of let's get them involved in some activity as they go. Yeah, I think that's great. And, and while I know that might be a very, very simplistic question, but I think that that's that that last two minutes is like that's gold to a person who's struggling to try and implement small side of games or, or doesn't have the experience or maybe hasn't done the the coach ed or the workshop or whatever it may be to see that in action. But you just laid that out really, really simply. And also, if you play a game right from the get go, you, those kids won't be late the next week. Uh, you you can probably count on that. Um, look, um, I suppose. We have three questions that we usually ask everybody when we have on the show. So I'm going into the first one here. Um, and you can be as short or as long form in your answer here because they're quite broad questions. So some answers are uh, 10 seconds and some answers are nearly a second show. There's nearly a second episode of the podcast, which is great. OK, because we love the variety here. So um, what does the term successful coach mean to you? Um, if I looked at it purely from a coaching point of view it, it would be someone that doesn't get burnt out you know I'm very conscious of um, yeah effectively I could be coaching for the rest of my life um, and at Google they talk about well what's your happy place what makes you smile so I think it's really important as a coach you understand what makes you smile and if you're happy you're going to be a successful coach because you're true to yourself and you're being yourself you're not trying to be somebody else um, so burnout would probably be a, a big one for me that a successful coach doesn't have burnout but they're really present they're very self-aware and if I look at the best coaches I've worked with me being a, an athlete as a player but now looking at coaching and working with them it'd be the ones that are most present you know it's not the one that's looking at their emails on their phone it's the one that is most successful and most present at that session can I just get expand on that? Can I ask you to expand on that a little bit? Because um, that's a very different answer than we usually get. So I'd love you to explain more, I suppose, by what you mean by being present. And, and then again, maybe a little bit more on, on being burnt out as a coach. 
Um, yeah, so being present, I, I share an example. So I worked with a coach called Quan Brown. Um, the man's Pep Guardiola of, of field hockey to me. Um, he's a bit of a genius and anyone in hockey would probably know him. Uh, we used to work at school together and he was a part-time GB assistant coach for the senior men. And then we would coach the junior teams at school. And he would come from training the senior Olympic team at 12 o'clock. And we'd be on the pitch at two o'clock coaching the under 10. And I said, uh, you know, how do you do it? And he goes, I have five, 10 minutes before a session. And I just work out, well, what is my behavior going to be to be present in this session? You know, so who are the individuals I might need to talk to a little bit more? What's my interaction going to be? Or I might challenge myself today. I'm going to be the happiest coach in the world. And I'm going to give the most high fives out. Or actually, when I go and work with the under 15s, today I need to be a little bit harder on this side because this happened on the weekend or this and this. So just being present is just having that self-awareness of, I guess, understanding of why you do what you do. Um, and I guess what was the other part of your question was, was burnout. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think it's a, um, and I think it's actually becoming more prevalent as in people are talking about it more, especially at the, the higher end, you hear the likes of Cody Royal and st- people like that talk about it a lot. Um, but I, I just, in your own context, uh, uh, the way you, you brought it up, I'd love to you to expand on it, please. Um, yeah, I hope I'm not defined as a coach in a way. Um, I hope I'm defined as a, as a person and, yeah, what I do. And I don't want to be known as hockey coach Jack or football coach Jack or coach developer Jack. It's, you know, that's, you know, I'm Jack in a way. Um, and I share the example of the, the West Coast Eagles. So, Ultimately, Australian rules football is a, is a franchise system. Um, and there's, what, 20-plus teams. And in the middle of last year, or year before last, COVID, they had to get rid of their coach, half their coaching team because they quickly realised that it was too large and it was costing too much money across the franchises. And um, some coaches struggled massively because all they were known for was being an AFL football coach. Um, so now... In AFL or at the West Coast Eagles, from what I've experienced, all the coaches are becoming a teacher or they're doing a psychology degree or even the players, you know, they might go and be a barista and all that sort of stuff. So there is an interest interest outside of your sport and what you do. Um, You know, I'm 25, 26 next week, but, um, you know, I don't want to necessarily be on a hockey pitch for the rest of my life. Um, and I don't want to be known as a hockey person for the rest of my life. It's just being present and enjoying, but also knowing what makes me happy. So I know that for me to be happy and to me to deliver a good session, I probably need to have a good coffee beforehand, um, you know, and, and in Perth, that's pretty easy to get hold of. But, um, you know, just knowing what makes you happy. So go into your favourite coffee shop, get in the favourite chicken and waffles, and then go and deliver your session. That, to me doesn't burn me out because I know that space is I don't take my phone I don't take my notebook don't take anything I just go and enjoy a coffee and have a chat and read the newspaper often we can just get yes yeah, so much well see it's engagement isn't it we you know we love what we do but we can love it too much sometimes yeah no it's a it's a, a really good really good ex- explanation and a really good example and um Yes, uh, I totally agree with you about getting the coffee in before a session. So uh, I think a lot of people will relate to that. Um, okay, second question. Um, best book, resource, anything that you would recommend to coaches out there? Yeah, um, Talent Lab 
is a really good one. Um, so that was post post 2012, kind of in the build up to, to 2016 for the Olympics. And that was all around how Team GB um, across all the sports just fought differently around how they do some of their stuff. So speaking to lots of different coaches, lots of different um, environments about why they were successful or maybe why they weren't so successful and talent and lab, you know, those two words of lab is experiment ultimately and talent is is people and potential and how can you take that potential and, and put that somewhere. So that's one of my all-time favourite books and I've got two books for Christmas, um, Mensch Beyond the Cones, about German coach education is, it's brilliant and it's even better because it's easy reading for a dyslexic and there's some good pictures in there, which is always handy. Um, and then Phil Jackson, 11 Rings. So anyone that obviously watched the Netflix documentary saw a bit of insight, but um, yeah, the, the book's great and it's really written from a, a personal angle and lots of tips around, you know, they added meditation into their program or how they dealt with the Maverick players. Um, so yeah, they're probably two of my favourite books at the moment and um yeah i love them excellent um yeah and and a couple of good books that you've mentioned there as well and we put up details and links to those books uh when we post up um the notes on the show last question uh your top tips for a developing coach uh are we talking about a developing coach that is starting on their journey i think so i uh, maybe not starting maybe starting early in their journey or maybe midway through their journey and maybe feeling a little bit burnt out so what would your top tips be um ask for feedback it's probably something i didn't do enough uh i'll go and watch other coaches that's probably the best experiences i've had i don't learn much from my own sport um because naturally you have quite a closed lens um but going to watch other coaches of other sports is probably high up there you know i've learned more as i say from other sports than i have my own sport um work out what makes the kids smile is something i wrote down here remember the game is the best form of feedback and that actually a game day is not a a test of competition and a test of knowledge but actually it's a, it's a form of training so you might add some different challenges in you might change around the point scoring system internally for your own players so the lens of focus is not actually the score line it might be well how many tackles did you make or how many passes did you have in the attacking half? So little stuff around game day. And then the other one was um, don't be somebody's last coach is probably a good tip and be present and be aware of that. Yeah, I like that. Um, I, yeah, and I'll definitely rob that at some stage uh, over, over the coming uh, months and years. Um, listen, Jack, it's been a pleasure having you on. Um, I love the way you talk about the value of the, the, the softer skills of coaching in terms of the relationship building and, and the rapport that you have with players. Um, the simple stuff that you've said around like even getting the training early and having the equipment out and being set up and the importance of that preparation, the 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 practical example of small sided games I think people would feel I would find really invaluable to, to, to the listeners of the show so uh, I'd like to thank you for giving up your time I hope uh, it's not stupid o'clock in Australia and um, really really enjoy the chat and thanks for coming on